Lord God, I thank you for how we were able to fully express ourselves through worship in just the last few minutes. And some of us asked something very, very bold of you. We asked that you would take us to a place without borders. Some of us actually said, would you let us know what it is to like walk on the water in oceans deep and trust you? Father, I recognize that sometimes we say words without really thinking about what we're asking for. And I, I pray that as we look at what Paul and Barnabas went through in Acts chapter 14, that we really grasp what it means to walk with you, what it means to own the gospel of Jesus Christ. So I pray for insight. I pray for understanding. I pray that you make us more than students this morning of your word, but that you make us actual listeners who are in personal relationship with you and that it affects us. And that requires your Holy Spirit. So we ask that your spirit would guide us and teach us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus promised that when the gospel is presented, that the results of it would be explosive. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. That there's an effect, effect to the gospel, and there's an effect to the gospel. If you're not familiar with the term gospel, it literally is a word that encompasses the arrival of Jesus on earth, that God became man, and that God died a horrible death on the cross, and that God was buried in the ground, and that God did not stay in the ground, but praise the Lord, he was resurrected, and that he's coming again. That's the gospel in a nutshell. Jesus said, when that truth is shared, it will divide people. When you tell people that there is only one way to God the Father, that will divide people. When you tell people that they're sinners in need of a Savior, that will divide people. So Jesus said, the gospel is explosive. Paul wrote it this way, Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. You're going to get an opportunity this morning to see just how resolute Paul was when he wrote that, because you get to watch it fleshed out in his life today, to see what it really means to walk in the power of the gospel to the degree that it takes you to places without borders. God will do things through you if you really own the gospel, if you surrender yourself to him in that way. So the last time we were together, we saw Paul and Barnabas are in Pisidian Antioch. I told you there were 16 Antiochs in the New Testament. Um, they each had to have this, this surname to, it to help identify one from the other. Paul and Barnabas are in Pisidian Antioch. People reject what they have to say. Some believe, others reject. And so they literally leave the city shaking the dust from their robes and off their feet, and they head out. So we find ourselves 47 AD this morning, and they're on a Roman road. And this Roman road runs between what we call in the Bible Galatia, or today modern-day Turkey. It, it runs like a superhighway through that region. And when it gets to Pisidian Antioch, it forks. One portion of it goes due north, 120 miles, to the next colony. One portion of it goes southeast, 90 miles, to Iconium. And that's where we find them deciding to go. So they literally stand at a crossroad. And in the power of the Holy Spirit, they're trying to determine which way to go. They decide to go to Iconium. So go with me to Acts chapter 14 and verse 1. It says this, In Iconium they enter the synagogue of the Jews together, 
and spoke in such a manner that a large number of people believed, both of Jews and of Greeks. Uh, just to refresh your mind so you can see where they're at, there's a map on the screen that you're going to see, and this map will help you understand this region of Turkey, as we call it today. Antioch, Pisidia Antioch, is right in the very center of the map. Iconium is to the southeast, even if you can see it from the very, very back. Um, just make your way down to the, the right-hand side there as you're looking at it. Iconium's a, the 60, 70-mile journey that they've got before them. Now, Iconium is a major metropolitan area. The next image you're going to see on the screen is of a, a stadium. They had the technology, the skills, the ability. This is a major metropolitan area. Today we call the city Konya. It, it lost the name Iconium. But this city was a, a hotbed of culture. I, I want you to understand what Paul and Barnabas are walking into for a specific reason. It's a place of beauty. It's 3,200 feet above sea level. It's on this flat plateau surrounded by snow-capped mountains. And those mountains, when the snow melted off, they led water right down to their very fertile plains. And they produced orchard crops. Like, they were world-renowned for their orchards. And the wool industry, because of the way the sheep could graze, second to none. And so it was really important to Rome. Rome really wanted to have ownership of it. So 25 B.C., Caesar swept in and took it, made it part of what the Bible calls Galatia. But this is not the only culture that's there. This is an ancient people. Phrygia dates back thousands of years. And then come the Jews, 300 B.C. And then come the Greeks right around the same time. And then the Romans finally. So Paul and Barnabas are walking into this cultural fusion. Humanity of different sorts from all over the planet. And they understand specifically what they're encountering. So verse 1 says, when Luke writes, a large number believed, he's talking both Jews and Greeks according to verse 1, not just Jews in the synagogue, but the Gentiles who are there from all over the planet because he's been proving that Jesus is the Christ. But in verse 2, we're told that just like in Pisidian Antioch, there are those who disbelieved. Go with me to verse 2. But the Jews who disbelieved stirred up the minds of the Gentiles and embittered them against the brethren. Therefore, they spent a long time there speaking boldly with reliance upon the Lord, who was testifying to the word of His grace, granting that signs and wonders be done by their hands. So they're following a pattern, right? They're establishing churches in these major metropolitan areas, but they're always starting out with the synagogue. They begin there first. So no matter how many times the Jews ticked Paul off, he never gave up on them. Constantly going back, trying to reach into them, he shakes the dust off his robes against them, but then the next city he finds them again. But we're told in verse 2, the Jews disbelieved and they stirred up the Gentiles. And Dr. Luke actually uses the word, he, they embittered them. The, the word that's used there is they poisoned their minds, filled them with all kinds of thoughts counter to who Jesus is. Now since when do Jews really care about what Gentiles think? You might be looking at the text saying, well, I've never seen in the Bible before where the Jews really cared what the Gentiles were thinking. Why in this case are they trying to poison their minds? Well, first of all, we'd have to agree, jealousy is really an ugly thing, right, church? Jealousy is pretty ugly, and when it rears its head, it, it shows just how ugly it is, but there's more than that going on here. It's not just jealousy, that's one component of it, but Dr. Luke uses a very specific word here when he said they disbelieved. In your notes this morning inside your bulletin, you'll see two Greek words. This is the very first one that's used, this word disbelieved. It's this word apatheo, and it has this meaning of disbelief to it, 
but it's associated with the word disobedient. So to disbelieve in Jesus is to disobey God. And that's what we find these individuals doing. They're not just poisoning the mind of the Gentiles and the Greeks. They're being disobedient to God. How can they be doing that? Well, clearly, Paul and Barnabas have come into the city. They've explained who Jesus is, that he is the Messiah, that he is the Son of God. And they're saying, no way. We want no part of that. They don't only just disbelieve, they poison the minds of others and they disobey God. I'll back that up with Scripture that disbelief is disobedience by going to John 3.36. You see that on the screen. It says this, He who believes in the Son has eternal life. That's the one component, the belief. But he who does not obey the Son will not see life. That's why the two words are combined together. Disbelief is equal to disobedience. So what we see here are those who are refusing Jesus are disobedient to God, and they want to take others with them. So verse 3 says, therefore, they spent a long time there. That puts you and I in this place of tension. Verse 3 says they spent a long time there being powerful in their witness through the grace of God. And here's where the tension comes in at. These guys are in a place where individuals are openly opposed to them speaking against them, lying about them, inciting the crowd against them. And even though there's this strong resistance, they're still able to maintain their witness. It doesn't say the people opposed them, therefore they bailed. They're not about to back down. Why? Because they got the power of God, the power of the Holy Spirit. So hear me this morning. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ this morning, your witness is much more powerful than you understand. Your story about who Jesus is to you is a powerful witness when God's working through you. And this is the example you see in verse 3. God working through, they're sharing the witness, and they're able to stand against the resistance because of that. But there's a response to it, verse 4. But the people of the city were divided, and some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. So while they're speaking, while they're teaching boldly, the enemy is successfully poisoning public opinion turning people against them. So the teaching of the gospel has gradually polarized the city. It's a big city. Today it's 1.1 million people, several hundred thousand people at that period of time. The city is polarized because the gospel has an effect. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation, meaning it's explosive. So what you're looking at here is the result when the gospel is presented. So Iconium is smoldering. It's a hotbed. And it's not long before it's going to erupt. They have to do something with this confrontational truth that's been presented. Let's go back into the story, verse 5. And when an attempt was made by both the Gentiles and the Jews with their rulers to mistreat and to stone them, they became aware of it and fled to the cities of Lyconia, Lystra, and Derbe, and the surrounding region. And there they continued to preach the gospel. Now we're seeing that Paul and Barnabas are really bold. Would you agree? They're really bold, right? But bold does not translate to stupid, church. Okay? Bold is not foolish. And there is a difference. They recognize when they hit the boundary line. Our life is in danger. We'll be no good to the church if we're dead. So we're going to leave. And they're going to go on to another city. So they're not stupid, but they're bold to the point where they've shared everything that they can do. Boldness, I don't know if you're aware of this, maybe you've never studied Paul's life before, but boldness defines Paul. It's just who he is. 
He's just a guy who's out there sharing exactly what he knows to be true. Matter of fact, his personality was so impressive on people that individuals went out of their way to meet him, whether or not they were Christians, wanting to understand who he was. In the second century, second century A.D., there was an individual who sat down to write a book called The, the Acts of Paul. And he wrote an, a history about Paul's life, the things that he did. And he actually looked up someone who had physically met Paul and gave a physical description. And I've got that. Would you like to see that description of Paul? There's a physical description of Paul from somebody who was living in the first century. You'll see it on the screen. It says this. He saw Paul approaching a man small in size with meeting eyebrows with a rather large nose somewhat hooked. Bald-headed, bow-legged, strongly built, full of friendliness and grace. For at times he looked like a man, and at times he had the face of an angel. So we got this guy who's this small bundle of muscle with a unibrow. <laughs> I'm not sure how he felt about the description that was written there, but the guy's saying, man, he's got intense eyes, his eyebrows meet, but he's got this really friendly face. And he's an individual who's full of grace. But man, is he built... Guy's just a bundle of muscle. Well, this Jewish man, along with his friend Barnabas, become aware they got a really unruly crowd on their hands. This is mob violence. Second Greek word in your notes this morning, and the last one for this morning, and the word horme that's used there. It's just an unruly group of people who are rushing at them as an assault. It's not a government action. The government is not persecuting them in this case. This is an attempt to kill them. No trial here, so they head to Lyconia. Now, your Bible might say Lyconia is a city. I don't, I don't know what translation you have this morning. What you see on the screen is the New American Standard Version, NASB. It says that it's a city, but that they're actually villages. Don't, don't think city like Lansing, metropolitan area, but small towns, these three towns that they're headed into, rural towns off the beaten path. There's nothing more that they can accomplish in Iconium by remaining there, so they head off to where God can use them more significantly. Verse 8, At Lystra, a man was sitting who had no strength in his feet, lame from his mother's womb who had never walked. This man was listening to Paul as he spoke, who, when he had fixed his gaze on him, had seen that he had faith to be made well and said with a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he leaped up and began to walk. Do you see Luke's threefold description? Three ways he's emphasizing this guy's hopeless. He, he is without any strength in his feet. He's been born from the womb lame, never walked. So he's disabled from birth, and the whole town knows it. It's not a big town. Everybody knows who the village beggar is. And this guy is the one that Paul locks eyes with out of all the people in the crowd. Paul sees that this guy has the faith to be made well. He doesn't only see that. He sees an opportunity to confirm the truth of the gospel with a miracle. Everything that he's been saying about Jesus can be confirmed with the miracle that's about to take place. So catch this. A man who has never ridden a bike, he's never played ultimate frisbee, he never jumped into a cool, refreshing lake, has no idea what that's like. He's never walked, is about to have the Spirit of God unleashed upon him. Why? To confirm the truth of who Jesus is. God is doing that. Now make no mistake, this is not the power of Paul. This is God's power. Why do I point that out? 
Because in the verses you just read, there's no mention of the name of Jesus. There's no mention of the power of God. Paul just says, stand up and walk. Now, it's important to point that out because you and I, through the lens of the New Testament, can look at this and say, well, certainly that's through the power of God. But the people in Lystra don't know that. That causes them to draw the wrong conclusion. Something amazing has happened. A man who has never walked suddenly is walking? What do you do with that? How do you explain it? Well, this is how they explained it. Verse 11, when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they raised their voice, saying in the Lyconian language, the gods have become like men and have come down to us. And they began calling Barnabas Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. Is that not a bizarre reaction? This has its roots in local folklore. Ancient legends went among the people of Galatia that Zeus and Hermes had visited planet Earth in a disguise hundreds of years previously and that they went to the city of Lystra. And when they went to Lystra, they visited the city as homeless men who were beggars and no one would take them in except for one peasant man and his wife. And when they invited them in, the gods, Zeus and Hermes, brought destruction down upon the rest of the city. Well, these guys are thinking, we don't want this to happen to us. What happened to our grandparents? They're kind of playing into this legend. So they begin exalting them as gods here on earth. So Paul and Barnabas at this point have no clue, no inkling of what's going on. Do you notice that Luke gave us the detail? He said they're speaking in their own native Lyconian language. Well, I don't care what Bible college you went to at that period of time. They weren't teaching you Lyconian. It's just a very obscure dialect. Very few people were speaking it. But in this small, no-account town, they're falling back into their old language. They begin speaking in a Lyconian dialect. Paul and Barnabas don't know what they're saying. They begin to sense something's up when the priest of Zeus shows up. Verse 13, the priest of Zeus, whose temple was outside the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gate and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. Celebration, let's kill the fatted calf, right? Nothing but the best for our gods. Here's what you should be noticing, church. Miracles in and of themselves do not produce faith in Jesus Christ. Miracles by themselves do not produce conviction. They need the accompanying word of God. Just let your eyes drift back up the page to verse 3. When you see them in Antioch and performing miracles, the word of God is associated with it. Paul never gets a chance to explain the word of God. This irrational crowd begins erupting in response to these events because of their predisposition. They're falling back into what they think is worship of God. Paul's been in town explaining who Jesus is. They're trying to mix the two together. The word always has to accompany the miracles, or it's a miracle for no reason whatsoever. Verse 14, Paul's argument, but when, Paul, when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their robes and rushed out into the crowd, crying out and saying, men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of the same nature just as you and preach the gospel to you that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. Now, by now, Paul and Barnabas are dialed into what's unfolding. And they begin shredding their clothes. They're ripping their clothes. I'll explain that in just a minute why they're doing that. 
There is a tendency, I'm, I'm going to say even a capacity in our human nature, even today, to want to worship the created rather than the creator. Do you hear that? There is a tendency in our human nature, in our fallen nature, to want gods on earth in the form of men that can be touched and can be seen because it didn't take faith that way. There's a desire for that. God's in the likeness of men. Now, Paul and Barnabas know all too well what happened to King Herod Agrippa. You remember that from chapter 12 when people started calling him a god? That didn't work out so well for him, did it? So Paul and Barnabas are very aware of that, but they're also, because they're followers of Jesus, they're not going to let them heap this on them. When the apostles heard of it, verse 14, apparently they've been asking people to interpret the Lyconian language. They begin shredding their clothes. What you're seeing is a Jewish expression of revulsion. It's all over the Old Testament. People hear a blasphemy, they rip their clothes in protest. It's a fiery way to stop, put a stop to the sacrifice. The same thing happened to Jesus. Jesus is on trial. People hear him answer a question they didn't like the answer to. Jesus, tell us the truth. Are you the son of the living God or not? Jesus' response, I am. And you will see me coming at the right hand of the power of glory on the clouds of heaven. At that, what happened? The Jewish leaders shred their clothes. Well, Paul and Barnabas are doing the same thing for a good reason, because of the blasphemy here. Verse 15, it says, we're men of the same nature. We want you to turn from these vain things. It's the very reason Paul and Barnabas made the trip all the way down to this city. Move from this stuff. Hear this, especially if you're new to church. Maybe you've never heard this before. Anything, religion included, anything, religion included, apart from the worship of the one true God, is vain. That's Paul's words here. He's helping them to understand what you're chasing after is hopeless. We're not gods. Now, Paul really understands his audience. He's got a room, auditorium city, full of Gentiles. They're not Jews. They don't know the Old Testament. So watch what he does. He doesn't begin explaining to them the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They don't know the Old Testament. They don't know the New Testament. It hasn't been written. So he goes to God the Creator. What he communicates is not about the God of the Old Testament. It's about God in creation. And he makes it clear there is but one God, the living God, the true forgiving God. Let me point you to him. Do you have someone in your life this morning who doesn't understand the Old Testament, doesn't understand the New Testament, makes no sense to them whatsoever? Do what you see Paul doing here. Take them to God the Creator. Because God says creation is evident witness that I am who I say I am. Matter of fact, let me show you his argument from Romans chapter 1. You you can use this yourself. Use Romans chapter 1. Verse 18 says this, That which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. That's an approach anybody can understand. God in creation Uh, Let's go subterranean for just a minute because Paul does. Just take about three minutes. Most people look at the book of Acts and say it's it's just full of stories. 
Well, it is, but there's also theology in the book of Acts. Watch this. Verse 16, in the generations gone by, he permitted all the nations to go their own ways, and yet he did not leave himself without witness, in that he did good and gave you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Here's the implication. Your ancestors did things in ignorance in the past. They didn't have the revelation of who God is, but today you have it. I've been spending time with you in this city. You know who Jesus is now. Your ancestors had no direct revelation. The Israelites had special revelation. Now these individuals living in the first century, they've got special revelation because Paul's explaining who Jesus is. The ancestors did not know the true God, so God overlooked their sin the way that they ignored him. But to the degree that they have to understand that God is the God of creation, they have to acknowledge him. Paul is revealing them to him. So in the past, they've not been accountable. In the present, they're accountable because Jesus has come. So if you're looking for theology in Acts, here's where it's at. Paul's literally saying the pagan nations in the past, they get an excuse for being ignorant. They didn't have special revelation. Israel had it. But now the special revelation has come. And even to this degree, they had creation revelation, so Paul makes the argument. God gave you everything to make himself evident. He gave you good things like rain from heaven, food for your plates. He gave you great weather, a good place to live. That's his argument with them. But then he steps it up. Acts 17.30, you'll get to see this in a couple weeks. He says this, God having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all everywhere should repent. Here's what this is telling us. We just step out of this theology back into the story, but hear this. God's providence, God's provision in your life and in your family members' lives, in your friends' lives, God's provision demands a rational response to his creative power. He's saying, I'm here. Everything I've done is evident. You can see me. That's why Psalms 19.11 says, the heavens declare the glory of God. The earth shows his handiwork. Now, unfortunately, for most of the people there that morning, it fell on deaf ears. They weren't really listening because they're so predisposed to their previous religion. See the next verse, verse 18. Even saying these things with difficulty, they restrained the crowds from offering sacrifice to them. See, Paul's not able to get beyond the basics of the one true God. He's barely able to restrain them. Now, eventually, the crowds quiet down. Eventually, the crowds back off, and they don't try and offer a sacrifice anymore. But hear this. Satan's timing is excruciatingly accurate, and he knows when to show up. Now, catch what's happening in this next verse. We already studied two weeks ago that Paul and Barnabas had to go through mountainous, rugged terrain 90 miles plus to get to Pisidian Antioch. They had to come back through it to get to this region. Then they end up in Iconium, and now we find them in Lystra. See this next verse with that thought in mind. Verse 19, but Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having won over the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. Really let that verse settle with you for a minute, church. If you just sang the songs, God, will you take my feet to places without borders? Let me walk upon the water, God. 
Show me what it's like to really walk with you. Let that verse settle in your mind, church. These people hate Jesus so much, they walked 190 miles to hunt Paul and Barnabas down. And when they found him teaching about Jesus, they stoned him. That's why it really needs to settle in with us. One minute Paul is a God to be worshipped, and now he's a criminal. What explains that? You think they'd want to know the power behind what they've just seen. A lame man from birth is up and walking now? Wouldn't you want to know what is behind that? But mob violence tends to not think clearly. Emerson has a great definition for this. Not Emerson Egridge, but Ralph Waldo Emerson. I want you to see this on the screen. A society, a mob, is a society of bodies voluntarily bereaving themselves of reason. It's true, right? You see it today. They bereave themselves of reason. So we've got an act of mob violence, and the crowd stones Paul. So question. When someone is stoned, is it intended to get their behavior in order? It's not, is it? It's not like, oh, you bad boy, clean up your language. We'll teach you. We'll throw some stones at you. It's not what's going on, is it? It's intended to kill, right, church? Stoning is for execution. They hate him that much. They hate Jesus that much. They're willing to kill him. So when someone is stoned, it's not for punishment. It's to kill. Now, in the New Testament, my Bible reads the same way yours does. Your Bible does not teach a prosperity gospel. It doesn't teach health, wealth, and welfare. It teaches the truth And the truth is, it costs something to follow Jesus. You ever read 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and 12 and seen Paul's laundry list of the things that he went through? Shipwrecks, robbers, oceans, drownings. Five times I was beat within an inch of my life. Stoned. Well, he's talking about this incident here, that he was stoned. I don't know if you've ever stopped to think about the persistence of Paul, that, that P in his name stands for persistence in my mind. This guy's incredibly persistent. Watch it in verse 20. But while the disciples stood around him, he got up and entered the city. What? While the disciples stood around him, he got up and entered the city. The next day, he went away with Barnabas to Derby. Now, the executioners believe that Paul is dead. They have literally dragged him out of the city and dumped him in a heap, and they don't even stoop to give him a decent burial. Now, apparently, Paul's been successful in Lystra. He's been there a few days. People have come to Christ. He's got disciples who understand who Jesus is, and now they stand around his body. And we've got new believers in a crisis situation. They're the minority. The majority is inside the city, and they're frothing. They hate what Paul has been sharing. And now their leader has been stoned. Their future looks miserable, doesn't it? Their future absolutely looks miserable. The disciples stand around the battered body of a man of God. I think they're probably thinking, how do we bury this? What do we do with this body? And verse 20 comes along, and it says, he got up and entered the city. What? What? Who does that? 
This is amazing courage. He walks back into the same city where they just used him for target practice. Are you tracking with me? This guy has courage that's off the charts. How do you do that? How do you go to the places without borders? How do you walk into the office environment and begin talking about Jesus boldly? How do you go into the school and be a witness for Jesus? Take my feet to the places without borders. Let me walk upon the water. The next phrase in that song says, when my eyes are focused upon you. Let my eyes stay on you. How does Paul do this? He knows that he knows that he knows that what he's communicating, church, is the real deal. It's worth his very life. And he's willing to put it on the line. That's how you do that. You're convicted in your spirit that what you own is absolutely real. To the degree that even the very next day, verse 20 says, when Barnabas gets up, he heads off for Derby. 40-mile journey. How excruciating do you think that painful walk was? This guy has been beat with stones. How black and blue was he? Even though he's this little muscle man, you know those bruises hurt, and they go for the head when they try and stone people. Paul wrote only a few months later when he arrived back home, he sat down and wrote the book in your Bible, the book called Galatians, the letter to the people of Galatia. Look at what he said in chapter 6. Chapter 6, verse 17, I bear on my body the marks of Jesus, la stigmata. We use the word in English, stigma, stigmatism. That's where it comes from. I bear in my body the marks of walking for Christ. He's going to carry the scars the rest of his life. Paul knows who he belongs to and why. If you've grown up in church, maybe you heard hymns when you were younger, you may be familiar with this old song I haven't heard in years. I know in whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep me against that day. It's Paul. He knows, he knows it, he knows that he knows in whom he believes. Uh, Let this settle with your mind as we close this story. When you come into the next passage in verse 21, understand, Paul could easily go from Derby, only a five-day walk to get him back home. He could go right through the Cilician Gates. It's 150 miles, but for Paul, that's peanuts. I mean, the guy walks 30 miles a day. We've got to walk 50 miles across, or 50 yards across the mall parking lot to get to the picnic today. Like, come on, really? It's 90 degrees out. Paul is going to be tempted to walk to Tarsus five days away, and yet he does exactly the opposite. Let's end the story. Verse 21. After they had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch. This is where they wanted to kill him, right? Verse 22, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. What are they doing? They're revisiting the very cities where they've just been kicked out of. It's less than a year. Same people still living there, right? Same government still in power, right? 
Do you think there's danger in this situation going back? These people have demonstrated they're willing to kill to stop the name of Jesus from being advanced. Paul and Barnabas know something. They know something that too many people who are Christians today are not ignorant of but are willing to ignore. I'm even going to put myself in that category. Especially maybe previous, I'll go back 10 years in time. Last 10 years, I'm becoming much more aware of it. Paul and Barnabas know that there is a cost to following Jesus Christ. Right? It comes at a price. That's, that's why the New Testament is not health, wealth, and prosperity. It's, it's reality. It's truth. Following Jesus comes at great cost. Just ask our brothers and sisters in Christ who are living in the Middle East right now, what does it cost to follow Jesus? They, they know that one, and they also know this. They know that walking with Jesus means encountering the kingdom of darkness. Do you, do you think that Satan is behind that stoning? <laughs> I absolutely do. I absolutely believe that Satan has excruciatingly accurate timing and he knows when to show up. And here's the third thing they know. They know that it's even more dangerous for new believers to be left alone and not be mentored in the Word of God. So when you read those last two verses, you see the focus of their attention is completely to go back to those cities and encourage people in the faith to persevere, to be strong. The same thing that you're doing this morning. You're being encouraged in the faith to persevere. Why? Because Jesus told us in the world you will have tribulation. It's just part of the package. If you're going to follow Jesus, expect it. Now that is not to suggest if you don't have it this morning, if your life's going along swimmingly well, I am not suggesting you're not a believer and not a follower of Jesus. That is not the truth. But you should, when tribulation comes, expect it so that you're not blown out of the water thinking, God abandoned me. There's a reason for the tribulation and the hard things you go through. Here's the last couple verses, verse 23. We need to send these guys home. When they had appointed elders for them in every church, having prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Do you think they're exhausted by their travels at this point? You guys are looking like you got blank faces and you're ready for lunch. Okay. Do you think that they're tired? I think they're tired. I think they're exhausted, but they're not too busy to not organize the church and to put elders in place and now watch them go home. Verse 24, they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. When they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. From there, they sailed to Antioch, from which they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had accomplished. So once again, they're going right back through those same rugged mountains again, and then they jump on a ship And you can hear the wind fill the sails. The sails snap to attention, and they get a ticket, and they get to go home. And when they arrive home, here's what happens, verse 27. When they arrived and gathered the church together, they began to report all the things that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles, and they spent a long time with the disciples. If you were in the church that morning in Antioch when those two guys showed up, do you think the church would have been electrified? How great of a story do they have to tell? You wouldn't believe what God did through us. You wouldn't believe what we had to go through. You wouldn't believe the doors that God opened up. They've been gone for at least a year. Antioch, the big city Antioch, commissioned them, as we saw in verse 12, chapter 12, and they prayed over them and sent them out with money. 
said, go do it, guys. So verse 27, they're reporting all the good things that God did through them. That tells me they got their priorities in line. They know exactly who was doing the work, and it was God doing it through them. This story ends in such a cool way. We spent a lot of time this morning in the city of Lystra. Lystra is where they stoned Paul. Lystra is where they dragged him out of the city and left him in a heap. And there's some disciples standing around Paul. In Lystra is a family. Greek dad, Jewish mom, a son who's in his mid-20s. He's got a grandma. Her name is Lois. His name is Timothy. And he's watching all of this unfold. He's seen this man of God, this powerful witness for the kingdom who's got a unibrow come into his city with a hooked nose and a muscular body. And he talks about the one true king of kings. And he sees him get stoned and dragged out of the city only to turn around and walk right back into the city. In two chapters, you're going to get to see Paul go back to Lystra and see Timothy and be introduced to him as a disciple, a person who is a follower of Jesus Christ. And Paul says to Timothy, you're my guy. You're going to follow me. I'm going to train you. Because every Paul needs a Timothy, right, church? Every Batman needs a Robin. Paul's got a Timothy. Timothy's going to follow him. He's going to eventually pastor churches. What is this telling you? Sometimes the stonings in your life, sometimes the beatings that you endure, sometimes the shipwrecks that you're on, it's not always about you. It's about the person watching you. The Timothys who are yet to surface, whom God's going to use to shape the kingdom in the future. You and I will be long gone. There will be a whole new generation of Timothys under us. I'll save that for another time. Let me close with one verse. It's Paul writing to Timothy as an old man. And he says, Timothy, you're aware of what I went through. This is the way it ends. 2 Timothy 3.11, Timothy, you're aware of the persecutions and sufferings such as happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, what persecutions I endured, and out of them all, the Lord rescued me. It may not feel like Paul was rescued because he had to be stoned first, right? But he says, I was rescued. Whether here on earth or eternity in heaven, I'm rescued. I belong to Jesus. Let me pray for your church as we take on this week because you don't know where you're going to have to be bold, right? But you're going to have to model the name of Christ this week. Let me pray for you. Father, I, I pray for us as a collection of believers who have just spent this last hour, hour and a half willingly to know more about you and to encounter you and see what it is to walk with you. So I I pray for this collection of believers that you would give us a new understanding of what it is to not be ashamed of the gospel of Christ. 
to really grasp that it is the power of God unto salvation. So, Father, I pray for new hope, for boldness with a capital B. It's in Jesus' name we ask for this. Amen.